looking at Romans 10, a fairly big chunk, much bigger than we normally do, um, but it's, it really does all fit together so well, it was kind of hard to, to separate it out. And um, so what we have this morning is really a simple gospel and a simple process of accepting it. And so um, it reminds me, so you may not know this about me, uh, but I, like, I don't, I don't watch a whole... Um, a lot of like TV or movies, but when I do, I try to pick things that are real. So like I would rather watch a documentary about like how to grow broccoli than any Marvel movie. I don't know why. I just like like I just I love watching documentaries. I love learning things about real things, even when it's boring and like kind of doesn't affect me at all. Um, it's what I prefer. And so uh, just recently, I was and, and and then into that even like I I'm really fascinated by um, cults and just like understanding what they believe and why they believe it and how is it that people can um, believe some of the things and so just recently I was watching um, a documentary about I, I can't remember what it, twin flames or something I don't know it's like some weird thing you know it's a cult I mean it and it's funny because it, just like all cults it started with something really simple with a really simple idea, you know, I mean, you think about Scientology, like Scientology started as like, this is a self-help program for those who have anxiety and stress. And now they believe that aliens like killed aliens on another planet, captured their souls, brought them to earth, put them like me- froze them, melted them in a volcano. And then those souls came out and like infected cavemen. They, what? what? Like, where did, where, where, how did you get from, we want to help people lo- lower their anxiety to that? Because cults put forth an idea that is untrue. And so when the thing that they're telling you doesn't come about, when the thing that, it, this twin flame, it was like a dating service. And then all of a sudden you look up and now they're, I mean, it just, it, it got out of control. Because they're telling people something, it's not true, when it doesn't come about, they have to just keep changing their story over and over and over again. And the way in which cults work, which is really interesting, is like they just take control. They take control of every part of your life. They will convince you to not talk to your family, to not talk to your friends. I mean, my dad came out of Jehovah's Witness. Like, my, my dad's whole side of the family, it's all Jehovah's Witness. It is a cult, right? It's not a religion. It is, it is absolutely a cult. And that is one of the major things that they teach their people. I have aunts and uncles and cousins who I have not seen in 20-plus years. Why? Because I'm not Jehovah's Witness. I'm not a part of that cult. They don't talk to me. That's okay. I mean, I love them, and I wish I could talk to them and, like, share the gospel with them. But, like, this is the reality of what cults do. They want to be in control, and, it, and the reason they do that is because when they start getting into the crazy, frozen souls dropped into volcanoes, and you're just like, wait a minute, this is getting a little weird. If you have been cut off from everybody, that's it. That's all you have. You have this group, and that's how they keep you. And that's how they keep you there. And, so they, and it's confusing. And so all of that confusion is contrary to what we see in the Bible. This morning, what we're going to see in Romans 10 is that there is a very simple gospel message. And there is a very simple means by which we believe it and accept it. The gospel is accessible to all. It requires no money to join the club. It requires, it, it, there, there's no confusion going on. There's no degrees that you have to have in order to understand who Jesus is. Right? You don't have to go to seminary. You don't even have to get a bachelor. You don't have to get anything. Just sit down and read your Bible, right? That's all that is required of us. You don't have to have all of this special education. 
It's right here. It's clear and it's simple. Believe in the Lord, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. Right? Romans 10.9 is one that I've had in my brain for I don't know how long. Because it is such a beautiful, simple understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. So, that's what we're going to see this morning. It's a simple gospel, but then there's also some, uh, you know, it's Paul. There's some interesting things going on. There's some things that I learned, like I've never seen this before, never understood this. Um, But we'll start kind of, last week we looked at and we saw um, in the first four verses, right, that um, Paul longs that his brothers would be saved, but he recognizes the reason in which they are not saved is because they are pursuing a righteousness that is based on the law. And so he tells them, look, if you're, you have to pursue a righteousness that's based on Jesus. If you don't, there's, there's no salvation for you, right? And so he gives a really simple but strong exhortation. This is, this is what Paul is doing. I want you to be saved, but you can't rely on the law. You have to rely on Jesus. And so he tells us then in verse 5, look, if you are going to For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, what does that mean? Is Paul just like splitting hairs? Like, is there a difference between doing the commandments and living by the commandments? I think there is. I think it's more than just, do you not murder your brother, but do you have hate in your heart, right? Jesus ups the ante when we look at the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he goes even well beyond that. When he gives... Let's just look at it. Look at Matthew 5, 21 to 26. I don't want to say something and then misquote the Lord himself. Matthew 5, yeah, 21 to 26. I mean, he does this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but this is just a good example. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whomever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going... While you're going with him to court, lest the accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he doesn't just say, well, don't have anger. Like, if you're at the altar, if you're ready to give a gift to God, you are not in the proper state to do that if you have anger in your heart. So he's not, eh, you know, I wish you wouldn't. No, like you're not worthy of going before the Lord with anger in your heart. Like that's how much he expands the law. The Jews are thinking, as long as I don't murder somebody, I'm fine. As long as I don't commit adultery, I'm fine. And Jesus says, don't even have anger in your heart. Don't look at a woman with lust, right? He, He takes all of those rules and he takes them way deeper than the Jews ever thought that they were supposed to go with them. So when Paul says... Not only do you do the law, but you have to live by it. I believe what he is trying to show us is that we have to, everything about us, down to the things that we think, down to our motivation, down to every, the inner part of who we are, also has to be obedient to that law. And if it's not, well, 
you're in trouble, right? If you're going to live by the law, you have to do it, right? So if that's going to be your, your, your path to pursue, then this is, these are the parameters. These are the rules in which you are going to have to follow. Now, this is still what Orthodox Judaism believes, right? I like listening to Ben Shapiro. He's interesting. He gives lots of good stuff about politics. And every so often, right, he throws in a little bit of his understanding as an Orthodox Jew. And all the time, he talks about this. Look, it's just about what we do, right? It's only about the actions. The inner self doesn't matter. Judaism still holds on to this idea that it's only about your actions. In other words, be a good person and you'll go to heaven. Probably. Like, that, that's, the, that's the level of assurance that people have who are trusting in their own, their, their own goodness. Like, ah, I'm probably going to make it, I guess. I don't know. Like, you know, they, the big three. I didn't, I didn't murder and I didn't commit, cheat on my wife and I didn't rob a bank, so I guess I'm probably going to get into heaven. <laughs> like, that's, that's not what it's about. And that's what Paul is saying. If you're going to do it, like, every part of you, every day, every moment of every day has to be completely submitted to the law. You have to do it perfectly. Now, verse 6, which is a, a really interesting and huge slap in the face, I think, to the Jews who might be reading this. Because this is what he says. But the righteousness based on faith says. That's how he starts it. Now, he quotes from two different places. Anybody know where they're from? You got a little concordance in your Bible? Moses. Both of them. Both of them. He is quoting Moses and he is quoting the law, but this is how he describes what he quotes from the law. The righteousness that is based on what? Works? No, on faith. He is communicating right here. Even the law of Moses is a righteousness that is based on faith. It has never been about your works. It has never been about are you good enough? Paul makes that really clear in the book of Galatians, right? I mean, he just goes painstakingly labors, and he tells us very clearly, the law was not given so that you and I would have the list of do's and don'ts, and we would find righteousness in that. It was meant to show you and I how sinful we are. Go read the book of Leviticus, and then at the end of it, I mean, just read the Ten Commandments. You don't even have to read the entire law. We read the Ten Commandments, and we know that we are without hope. If I have to do those, just those ten things perfectly in order to get to heaven, I'm in big trouble. There's a lot of them. That even if you take it from that Orthodox Jewish perspective, right? I haven't murdered somebody. But I have stolen in my life. I definitely haven't been honoring my parents every day all the time when I was a kid. I mean, I got so many spankings. I don't, you know, there's no way to count them. At the very least, we all broke that one, right? You didn't do it perfectly. It's not possible. And so Paul says, there is a righteousness that is based on faith. And then he quotes the law of Moses. He says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, at face value, these are weird, right? That's confusing. What are you talking about? What? I mean, anybody know anybody like trying to ascend into heaven to try and find the face of Jesus or to descend into the abyss to try and find him? 
The point Paul is trying to make, I think, is that Christ is right in front of us. You don't have to go on a walkabout, scouring heaven and earth, to find the Savior. He is here. He is in front of all of us. He is readily available to anybody who believes in Him. It is not a great mystery of life about of what salvation is. There are laws. All of us broke them. God offers forgiveness to anybody who believes. Right? That's the message. That's what he said. You don't have to go into heaven to find Jesus. You don't have to descend into the abyss to find him. He is here. He is readily available to us. Verse 8 makes this, I think, really, really clear. So he asks these questions, but then he says, what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. They have it. It's right there. There's no reason for them to not understand. But here is the question that I think we would ask ourselves and really be a little bit troubled by. Does this feel true in the world that we live in? Does it feel true when you interact with the non-believing society that we live in that the word of God is in their mouth and in their heart? Not to me. <laughs> I interact with a lot of people who I think, man, the exact opposite of the word of God is coming out of your mouth. And it seems like the exact opposite of the word of God is what is, has dwelled and, and taken hold in your heart. If we ask the general public about Christianity, I think our society, we, I, I rarely, rarely get anywhere close to what the Bible says. When I ask people I know at work, I work for a Catholic hospital, right? I ask for people, and they, and they don't know. They don't have a clue. Our society doesn't get it. I mean, think, think about the thing that sort of pushes culture, if you will, art, Hollywood, those kinds of things. Can you, how many, I'm sure, I don't know, for me, I can count on one hand the number of times I have seen Christianity responsibly, accurately portrayed on TV or in a movie that is not, you know, some Jim Caviezel, right? Like, so they're trying to put forth Christianity, right? Either we're Ned Flanders, right? We're, we're walking around and everything is just good no matter what's going on. Or we're like, you know, Angela from the office. We're like hypocritical, angry at everybody, judgmental of everyone. Like this is the way that the world portrays what it means to be a Christian. And I don't think that they're, they're I don't think they're like, I actually know who Jesus is. I know what he taught. I know what he believes. I know, I, like, I know what he wants the world to believe. But I, I'm going to put this thing out there. I think they genuinely believe that this is what we are. One of those two things are somewhere in between. I will say, if you want to see a movie um, that accurately not only portrays Christianity, but atheism, there is this very unknown movie um, HBO made it years ago, and it's called The Sunset Limited. I think I've told a few of you about it. There's only two people in it. Samuel Jackson, it, it represents a Christian man, and Tommy Lee Jones represents an atheist. And they argue about their beliefs. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow they accurately represent Christianity. And they accurately represent atheism. And it's a beautiful movie. It's wonderful to watch these two guys converse about this. But it just, it's just an unknown. We interact with the world... 
and they don't have a clue what it means to be a Christian. They don't have a clue what it means. I mean, some, I remember one of my patients was 95 years old, and I explained to her the gospel in the most basic terms, and she was shocked that that's what Christians believe. Had no idea that that's what we believe. That everyone is a sinner, right? That Jesus came to forgive us, that everyone who believes in him would be saved. She's been on the earth almost a century in America, the whole, I'm like, like had full access and had no clue what it means to be a Christian. So then the question is, what do we do about it? It's a good question, but we're not there yet. A, little, a few verses down. So the simple gospel accepted by simple means, right? So there's a simple truth. Paul says, you don't have to ascend. You don't have to go scouring the, the universe to find Jesus. He is right in front of us. And then there is a simple means by which we accept it. So Jesus is with us. What do we do when we encounter him? If he is here, if he is readily available, what, what happens? Now there's variations on these, but there's essentially two things that happen. Either, as Paul says, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. So just like finding Jesus is a simple thing, the process by which we accept and believe and are saved by him is a simple thing as well. We believe that he is the Lord. And all of the things that go along with that, right? There's, so then there's like, oh man, this opens an entire door of explanation. We can't explain all of the different attributes of who God is, but he is God, and we have to believe that. We have to believe that he is without sin. That he can never sin. That he is 100% perfect and righteous and just. And that Jesus is that. And that we must confess that God raised him from the dead. So once again, the implication, right? That Christ has died. That he died for our sins. That when he died on the cross, the sins went with him. Now here is the thing, I think, that once again, to be aware of. Um, now, I don't know if this is true, like in other churches. I, I've been Baptist. I've been in Baptist churches my whole life. So um, I, I don't know for those of you who, you know, who come from, from different denominations, but in the Baptist church, man, we love the sinner's prayer, right? And especially when it comes to kids. It's like, man, if I can get this kid to say this prayer, like, I got it. They're saved. You know? I, and Every time I've ever seen it, I know that it's coming from a good place. There is a desire. We see a young child, and they're asking questions about Jesus, and they're saying, you know, I, I, yeah, I do. I think that I'm a sinner. And we see the hints of salvation going on in a child's life, and we sometimes get a little too hasty, right? We get a little ahead of ourselves. Oh, man, where's that prayer at? Like, let's get them to say it, and then, then they're saved. Like, we got them. Because we desire, we want to see the little hearts changed, right? But we have to be careful. Because if we, if we lead someone in the prayer before we see the belief, before we see the evidence of belief, it can be confusing. They might think, well, I guess I am saying, I said the prayer, but it's only half the equation, right? So like with our kids, um, my, my two oldest, I am as sure as anybody can be that they believe in Jesus and that they love him. But it wasn't the first day that they came to me and said, hey, I, I, think, you know, I think I recognize, I think I understand. I mean, we waited. We, okay, like, 
I, I hear what you're saying. I want to I, I see evidences that there is belief in your heart. There's no way we'll ever know, right? There's no way that you can look into another person's heart and know whether they believe or not. But we should be as sure as we can. We should look for those evidences. We shouldn't rush into the prayer because even though this is a simple answer and the means are simple, we want to make sure as best we can that both things are happening, that there is belief in the person's heart as well as the confession of sin. So I just, I just say this to be careful because I was... I don't, and I think if somebody hadn't maybe like warned me about it before my kids, I probably would have been like, oh yeah, day one, like let's get them, you know, dunked and prayed and let's go, man, this is great news. And somebody before that had warned me like, make sure to be careful. Make sure that you don't confuse their little hearts and their little minds. Make sure that you see some evidence of that. Make sure that as best you can to know that there is belief in their heart. Now, the other result is they understand it properly. I don't think there's anything confusing about who Jesus was. Like, you explain the gospel to somebody in the simplest terms, they're going to say, okay, like, I understand the concept, I understand the logic, but there's no belief. And if there's no belief, there's no confession. And we can't force this onto anybody, right? We can share the gospel. But at the end of the day, if there is no belief, I can't produce that in anybody. If I could, I would have produced it in my own kids, like the moment that they were born. Right? We all would have. Right? Anybody in here with kids who loves Jesus, you would have been like, I don't care. what I'm, I'm doing it. Right? We're, we're producing this faith in my kids because I want to see them saved more than anything. But it's outside of our hands. Now, there was some advice given to me in this idea, right? We have friends, we have family members who are not believers, um, and we want to share the gospel with them. And when we have zeal for God, and we have zeal for God's word, and we want to see them saved, um, some advice was given and, and, um, that, that we would be careful in the way in which we present that. We would be careful how often we present that. Because here's the thing. You don't want your friend or your family or whoever who is not saved. And like every time you're with them, all you do is just talk about the gospel constantly over and over and over and over and over again. They're going to think like all that, all that they care, all they want is just for me to agree with them, to believe them, right? So, you, you, I don't know, you get a fishing buddy, right? You go fishing once a week. Maybe the first week of the month, like, you bring up Jesus, you talk about him, and then for a couple trips, you just, you know, don't bring it up, and then the fourth trip, you do. Whatever it looks like, I don't know, what, but find a good balance, because here's the thing. Yes, we want to see everybody saved, but we also want people to know that we actually love them and care about them. They're not a mark, right? They're not some, they're not some trophy that we're going to win. Oh, as soon as I get him saved, I'm done with this guy. Where's the next one? That's not how we should be interacting with the unbelieving world. We love everybody because God loves everybody. We want to see them saved, but we want to do it in a way that is helpful, right? We want to do it in a way that we are actually showing genuine love to people. Now, what is the result of this? What is the result of the belief and the confession? Of course, that we would be saved. But then Paul goes even further and he says, you will never be put to shame. This is what verse 11 says, right? This is what the scriptures say. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
It's simple, but it's really, really comforting, especially, once again, in the world that we live in. Because here on earth, there are going to be lots and lots of people. If you are vocal about what you believe, there will be lots of people who will mock you for it. They will call you a fool. They will, whatever. I, all, all manner of things. But God's promise here is that we will never be put to shame. You go back to these, these documentaries that you watch them about the cults, and, and almost every time they're interviewing people who have left. And what do you see on their face when they're interviewing those people? They're ashamed that they believed this, that they, were, that they bought into this lie, that they wasted years or whatever it is of their life believing this thing because they finally realized that it wasn't true. The gospel is the truest thing that has ever been spoken. No matter what happens on this earth, no matter what you have to experience, there is coming a day when you will stand before the Lord, and if you have belief in your heart, and if you have confessed sin, that you will not be put to shame. God will look upon you and say, your sins are forgiven. Come and join me in heaven for eternity. There is no shame in that moment. It will not happen. It is a promise, a guarantee from God that when you believe, that when you confess, that when you have your faith grounded in Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection, there will never be shame for you. Because even when you have that, even when those people, right, even if you do experience the people mocking you or making fun of you, I, I, I don't get it often, but it happens. I don't feel ashamed at all. I mean, I, I feel sorry for the people I want them to know and be saved, but even in those moments, they're trying to shame me, and I just, it doesn't happen, doesn't work, because I know what is true, and I know what is good. Now, Paul makes it very, very clear that it doesn't matter who you are. If you believe this, Jew or Greek, doesn't matter, right? There is no distinction. There is no separation. I almost say there is no separation anymore, but there never was, right? We've talked about this multiple times over the last however many weeks. If the Jews had been paying attention, they would have realized this from the beginning. God was always out to save remnants of the, across the planet, it was never just about, I'm only going to save Israel. Well, they messed up too many times, so I guess now I'll try and save other people. It was always about salvation for God's creation. All of us. Not just about one group of people. So no matter what country you come from, no matter what you believe, the salvation is for all. The Lord is the Lord of all. And once again, there's a warning, right? We should, ha- we should be careful. Because we live in a world where it's easy and popular to demonize certain groups of people, certain nations who are doing certain things, right? I'm not going to get political up here, but like we, sometimes that is encouraged of us. That we would think, well, yeah, I mean, I love the world, but I mean, this, but look what these guys are doing. I can't love them. The Lord is the Lord of all. He has called us to love every human being, no matter what they have done. Whether that be distant sins, right, that we see on the news, or things that have happened very specifically in your life. God is calling you to love and to forgive everyone, no matter what they have done. He is the Lord of everyone. 
His arm is not too short to save. Maybe the forgiveness that you offer to somebody who wrongs you deeply will point them to the Lord and they will see the Lord's forgiveness in your forgiveness. And if the Jews didn't see this and didn't understand this, then they didn't read one of the most famous books of the Old Testament. We teach it to our kids all the time. Right? Who gets swallowed by a big fish? Right? Little kids. Who? Jonah. Why is he swallowed? Because God calls him to go and to witness and to call the city of Nineveh to repent. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. There's generation after generation of violence against Israel from the Assyrians. They were some of the nastiest people alive. They did some of the most vile things to their prisoners and to their enemies. And there's, you know, when we know the history of of who the Assyrians are, you can look at Jonah and kind of understand, like, I kind of would rather be eaten and swallowed and go to the bottom of the ocean to go there. But God calls them, he calls him to go and to repent, right? To call them to repentance. Now, if you're not familiar with the book, if you haven't read it recently, well, for, let's look at Jonah chapter 3, because this is wonderful. Sorry, I'm the heathen who forgot my Bible, and I'm having to use my phone here. Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out to call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. If God can do that, and far greater than even just this, he can save anybody, any level of evil that is going on in our world. The Lord is the Lord of all. Don't look on other groups. Don't look on other whether it be people who, who have different ideas politically or different countries or what, it doesn't matter who they are. We are called to love everyone because God is the Lord of all. In case you don't remember, Jonah pouts that they, right? He wanted them to get destroyed. That's not the right attitude either. Right? If you call for repentance and people are coming to repent, don't, don't follow. Do, do chapter 3, don't do chapter 4. Right? Don't, don't get mad that the people who were sitting repented from their evil ways and that God forgave them. So it's not a new idea. And this is, this is something that 
is astonishing to me because it's not just little bitty small parts of the Old Testament where these kind of things come out, but the majority push is like, well, God only cares about Israel. The entire Old Testament is God trying to use Israel to save the world. And the Jews don't get it. They don't understand. And so again, there is a warning. This church soon, I don't know when, but soon, right, is going to embark upon bringing in a new pastor, permanent pastor, full-time, right? You see, the, the reason the Jews were so shocked about these things that Paul was saying is because their religious leaders were not teaching them properly. They were not teaching them what the Old Testament or what the Scriptures actually said. There are thousands of people, generations of people, who are led astray because their teachers were not being faithful to the Scripture. Now, I've been here long enough, and I feel like I know you guys well enough that you would not allow somebody to come and stand in this pulpit who would not preach the gospel and who would not be dedicated to preaching God's word. But there are, there are lasting consequences if you don't. If you allow someone in to teach and to preach who, will, who, who, who doesn't want to do that, who doesn't want to take the time to look at God's word and to read it. And so all I'm saying is, look, we're see, we see the evidence of what happens when your religious leaders, when those who are guiding you and leading you don't do their job well. Lots and lots of people are led astray. Okay, last thing, 14 and 15. Paul does something similar to what he did in chapter 8, right? He gives us this sort of logical chain. One thing is based on the other, which is based on the other, and they're all interconnected, and they're all interlocking here, and they all depend upon one another. It says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? They won't, right? So the rhetorical question, and the answer is, we all know, they won't. How can they believe if they have never heard about him? They won't, right? They're not going to. How can they hear if someone doesn't preach to them? Now, we have a little bit of an advantage, right, in the sense that there are Bibles everywhere. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be our spoken word, but somebody, they have to hear it somehow, whether we're preaching to them or whether they're reading it from God's word, people have to be able to hear. I sort of diminish this quote every time I get the opportunity. I'm going to do it again. Um, I hear it often. I'm sure you do too. Um, Go and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, is the biggest load of nonsense that there ever was. People don't look at you and say, oh, you're so kind, and you're so nice, and you're so polite. You must do that because you love Jesus. I'm going to be a Christian now. That's not how it works. The world that we live in is generally polite and kind. If you want people to hear the gospel message, Paul says it. So it's not just me. Paul says it. You've got to preach it, right? You've got to speak it out loud. Gospel means good news. Can you imagine if you watched the news and they didn't say anything? That's not new. You don't, you don't understand what's going on. It has to be spoken, Right? We have to go and tell people about Jesus. If the world is going to believe, they have to hear it. And they're going to hear it 
from the church, right? This is a huge part of what we are called to do as the church, is to be a shining light, right? To go out into the world, to go out into our community and share the gospel. Now, oftentimes, we think about the mission field as the indigenous tribes, like in faraway lands. But I beg to differ. I think that probably the world that we live in and the culture that we live in needs the gospel more than than many other places do. It's true. There are many civilizations who have never heard, right? And if you're called to to go do one of those things, that's great. But don't kid yourself into thinking, well, God didn't call me to move to Africa or to South America, so I guess I'm not a missionary. All that same stuff we talked about, asking the culture, and them giving us very wrong answers about who Jesus is, you live in a mission field. You work in a mission field. Your neighborhood is a mission field. There are so many people that you and I interact with every single day who may have heard the name of Jesus. They may think, oh, yeah, I guess. They probably think he was just a really nice guy who lived a long time ago, but that he's not the things that are required. That he's not God. That he wasn't raised from the dead. They don't actually have a true understanding of who Christ is. You see, your mission field is all around you. To preach the gospel means to walk out of here and talk to the person who's getting gas next to you across the street. Or the server, if you go to lunch today, most likely the server or the people sitting at the table behind you don't actually know who Jesus is. That's the world we live in. We live in a mission field where there are lots and lots and lots of people. So my challenge to you, tell people. Tell people where you work. Tell your neighbor. Tell everyone and anyone who will listen to you. The fields are ripe for the harvest. The question is, how are they going to hear if you don't go and preach? All right, let's pray. Father God, we love you. And this is a tall order. It's a simple command, but it is very, very difficult to carry out. Either we get so busy, or we become shy, or we think we don't know how to answer questions. Or, Lord, we have a million reasons in our mind as to why we probably aren't the one. We're not the one that's supposed to preach to this person. That'll be somebody else. Father, give us boldness. Give us zeal. Give us the words to say in those moments where we, we step out in faith and we interact with a stranger or we interact with somebody we work with or our neighbor and we see the door wide open in front of us and we know that it's prime for the gospel and we know that it wouldn't even be weird or awkward to bring up Jesus in that moment because they have just flung the door open wide for us to tell them the gospel. Father, give us the boldness to do it. This is what you have called us for. Father, we are weak. And we are cowards at times. We need your help. Our church needs your help. That we would never lose sight of what our mission is in this community. To go and to tell others about Jesus. Father, we love you. And I was so grateful that your gospel is simple. It's easy to understand. 
I just ask that you would send us out with zeal, with courage, and with boldness to go and share that gospel, to preach this news to the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.